Hi, I'm Ray from Insert Quest here. My pronouns are they, them. And this is part two of a two-part interview series we're doing with the creators of Hardwired Island. Today, we're talking to Freya Erling's daughter, an Icelandic game designer. Uh, it is a pleasure having you on the show, Freya. Would you mind introducing yourself? Well, thank you, Ray. I am Freya. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm an independent Icelandic game designer and translator in my spare time. Excellent. That's very cool that you're a translator. I didn't know that. Um, that's the, I find that interesting. I tend to find a lot. I, I tend to be collecting language people of late. I think I need to do something with this, but I don't know what. Well, um, it's always easy to know people who know languages. True. Uh, so we normally like to begin the show by asking about how you first got interested in role-playing games. Do you mind answering that for us? Uh, yeah, I can do that. Uh, well, my first memory of role-playing games actually comes from when I was very young and I found a Hollow Earth boxed set inside uh, inside my brother's closet. It's a basic or Mistara D&D setting. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, it involves like an like a uh, like a hollow image of the earth where you go inside the earth and inside the earth there are these civilizations and it was very wild at the time to me and uh, very interesting and i never found a group that played with me but later on i found other books that my brother had collected he was the one who really got started on this in the family and the big one that caught my attention was was vampire the masquerade ah yes that would be my first ever game. That was my like actual first game, and I yet I still came back to D and D eventually. It is always interesting um, asking that question and seeing the seeing these similarities, but also seeing the differences, like the fact that you talk about D and D and Vampire the Masquerade, which like that is. That mirrors my experience, but you know, you also are talking about this adventure path that I'd never, this adventure that I'd never heard of, um, yeah, and the, the fact that they, yeah, it's pretty special actually. Yeah, and the fact that there's an older sibling involved—that's not a part of my experience. Like, I, it's interesting seeing the similarities, but also the differences in that. Um, yeah, what's especially funny too about the Hollow Earth to me is that there, there, was, there were maps drawn for it, which have been replicated by like flat earthers and Hollow Earth people later. Oh wow. So I see them all over the place. It's instant nostalgia for me. I'm just thinking about uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, the actual book by Jules Verne. And I, I, I think that they get into the center of the Earth through a volcano in either Iceland or Greenland. In Iceland, yes. It's Snifels, your good love, been there. There you go. That's pretty cool. That's. I'm glad that I could that I could remember that kind of almost correctly. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, uh, my next question is how did you, or why did you, is perhaps more interesting, uh, first become interested in making games? Like, how did you move from playing D&D and Masquerade to making games or getting involved in the making of games? Ooh, well, uh, this this story might be a little bit unique, I think. I'm excited. Uh, what happened originally was I got deeper and deeper into these like uh, more narrative 
kind of games where you rolled fewer and fewer dice and you mm-hmm. did more and more like costumes and stuff like that, LARPing basically. Yep. And eventually I settled on, okay, so there's this diceless role-playing game called Amber Diceless and it's based on a novel series I like, so I might as well buy it. And it turned out to be one of the absolute worst games in my collection from like, like ever, I think. Oh no. <laughs> it was terrible. Like it didn't really have a resolution system. It had like a few grains of good things in between, but everything about it from like how the author read the novels and interpreted them to just how the game worked was absolutely terrible. And I thought, well, I can do better than that. Anyone can do better than that. And then I thought, why not? Like I, I, I should, I surely can like do something better than this. And that's really how it got started. Wow. So did you, did you end up making your own version? I have my, I have my own version of Amber lying around, yes. That's kind of cool. Um, Never published I, it yet. So. I mean, that's fair. Not every game has to be published. Um, mm. I have no intention of publishing my uh, early World of Darkness content, not because it w- is bad. It's actually, I would say, some of the best World of Darkness content. It's mm-hmm. just that it, it doesn't. I don't have an interest in playing that game and I don't and I don't need that content <laughs> to exist. We don't need more World of Darkness content. Yeah, exactly. I don't really play World of Darkness anymore either. And, and that content that I created doesn't have a need to exist outside of the context of World of Darkness. We don't we don't need there's no translation for it. Um exactly. but uh I think my next question is because you and Etten are collaborating on Hardwired Island, which is yep. this cyberpunk space habitat uh, game that's up on Kickstarter at the moment. Um, as of as of time of recording this, and as of as of time of posting, I'm interested in how you two first became connected and collaborating. Uh collaborating would have been later but the original time that we really got together and did some design would have been when i ran a design contest on the something awful forums and that was the genesis of retro causality the original version of retro causality by paul edden was written for that contest and he won wow See, I, I i phrased the question differently when i asked paul i just said how did why did how did you two first become collaborators and he and I didn't get, I got a very different answer. So, ah, well, uh, how we started collaborating, that's a little bit different. Like dude. we were both, we, we were both on discord and I think me or him said, Hey, want to make a game? And, was it, and the other one went like, sure. That is very close to what Paul said, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is interesting. Cause I'm glad that I found this other way to phrase it because it's interesting that you ran this design competition and then that's how, the two of you kind of met. Yeah, um, that's really how we like got together on the in designing. Had you run a lot of design competitions before, or what was the kind of genesis of that? Uh, there was a brief kind of period in something awful when there was a monthly contest, and uh, people would pass on the torch to other people to run these contests. Oh, and then I guess you set certain parameters about the contest. Yeah, like anyone who ran one of these could set their own rules. For like anything they wanted. My my goal was you cannot have a combat system. Nice. I'm here for that. Yeah. And that's how time travel happened, apparently. I 
love combat in games and am almost always disappointed by combat in games. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and that's actually quite important for how I began designing Hardwired Island. I'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I've I think it is interesting with this sort of dual interview thing to repeat some of the questions about the that I've asked of it. Um, and so I am interested in how you would summarize what Hardwired Island is. Well, as a game, which is a lovely, annoying question. Yeah, um, that like if somebody asked you on like a short interview show, that would be a very annoying question. But here, you've got at least half an hour to talk about it if you want. Exactly. <laughs> But I don't uh, think you will need that amount of time. <laughs> well, if I have to go like really shortly over it, I would have to say it's a retro future anime inspired cyberpunk role playing game set in space mm-hmm. uh, with an anti capitalist and uh, you know anti capitalist and transhumanist slightly theme to it. Yeah, see, already some interesting additions. Um, I mean, we did touch on those themes when I talked to Eden as well, but it's interesting yeah, that you put them more to the front of your description of the game. Yeah, well, I didn't write the ad copy, so... Fair. Um, so, mm-hmm. what was, in, within the colla- in the collaboration, what was your role on Retrocausality? How did the two of you divide up the labour? Well, it was never really a 100% clear division of labor, but essentially I was going to do the mechanics and he was going to do the setting, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is interesting because I'm the one who's gone through university doing literature studies and language and been in writing workshops and so on. So naturally, I'm the one who went to the mechanics side instead of the story side. (laughs) Uh, So... That was sort of the genesis of it. And besides that, I also wanted to get something out of my system. I always wanted to do like, okay, so I keep going back to these D&D concepts in my head. Why not just make my own version of D&D or something like that, push it out, be done with it, never think about it again. And that was really what the original idea was. Okay. So can can you tell us, so would you, obviously there is a lot of, complicated and messy taxonomy in role-playing games. Um, We talk about OSR games and Forge in the Dark games or D20 games or... Story games. Story games, like all RPGs aren't story games, but some are more story game than others Um, and and things like that. How would what what taxonomy would you ascribe to your game, if any? I would call it retro future, actually. Interesting. This is kind of a little thought I've had for a while. It's a very traditional kind of game when you get down to it. It has stats, it has skills, it has a very basic resolution system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty traditional. It's you know you succeed or you fail, and when you fail the Dungeon or dungeon master or game master decides what that means. Although in our we stole a little bit more from like story games in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has a very different kind of like evolution than most games took. Like I started writing this as a D and D hack originally. It's gone through two or three major revisions since. 
And with each revision, I thought, okay, so what if this is like what role-playing games look like in this alternate future? What if this is the path they took? Oh, that's really interesting. So uh, it's a very traditional kind of idea, but it has some untraditional, like, basic ideas thrown into there and thrown into the pot. Interesting. My my heart is uh, is pulling me towards asking about, like, what, parts of D&D you've brought into it and what things you've decided to change. But I think that that way of thinking about it is perhaps a little too in the box. So indeed. So instead, I'm going to find another way to get the answers that I actually want from that question. (laughs) So I think we might start off with what is, what, what aspects of the of the setting and the uh, and the thematic intent you talk about the anti capitalist bent and the transhumanist bent? Um, mm-hmm. How have you pulled those themes into the mechanics, and how have they influenced your design? Um, I'm going to go a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to go a little bit back here to the uh, contest I ran, which had no combat mechanic as its theme. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, Hardware Island has a combat mechanic, but I thought, okay, so what? I'm looking at the designs of these games and I'm thinking, okay, so almost every single game has like a core attack role at the center of it, designed around the combat system. Yeah, you have a D20 against armor class. You have this plus this dice pool against this and so on. And it's always like this combat metaphor is always there, right at the center. And I, I decided, yeah, okay, deep, so deep. Dungeons and Dragons takes a lot of influence from naval yeah, war naval war games in particular. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's all about so, thro- trading broadsides. So I was reading Star Wars D20 one day, Oh, okay. And I had like the latest edition of it, and I hit upon a little passage in the like slicing or what they call hacking uh, section of the skill section, and it said that the skill essentially functions like diplomacy, except on computers and droids. It makes them more friendly to you. Huh. And the diplomacy skill was, of course, very basic. Like, you roll to succeed. If you succeed, you're they're more friendly to you. But that section stuck with me because it was, seemed so brilliant to me. Like, okay. It's exactly what you're trying to do when you're trying to hack a computer. You're trying to make it more friendly to you, more receptive to what you're doing. So I based the core metaphor of the game on social mechanics, that is, talking to people, uh, uh, raising and lowering like the local mood of the scene around you, whether oh, you're hostile wow. or friendly. And then I lay it hacking on top of that. We're like, oh, the friendliest computer network is the one where you have administrator access to. And then there's like public searches. And then there's like a network that is actually trying to track you. That's really I, weird. Yeah. I love this design concept. And also, this is like the second or third time this has happened to me, where where something <laughs> someone is talking about in a, in an interview like immediately gives me like a game idea. Like normally I get game ideas as I'm listening to someone talking, but mm-hmm. nothing so clearly well formed. You and Melody clearly have a gift for this <laughs> because <laughs> I'm now thinking about a game where hacking is all about the power of friendship. Like it's a, it's, it's the movie hack is re-envisioned as a, exactly. as a far more friend, friend-directed narrative. 
Anyway, um, please tell me how else this like fed into the design. Another thing that happened was like I looked at other cyberpunk role-playing game systems and I looked at the origins of cyberpunk and I thought, okay, so what is the problem with hacking? It's always like oh, you have right, this one yeah. character who has, has their own dungeon thing to do. Uh, and I thought, okay, so obviously the problem is simply people are so preoccupied with the Gibsonian metaphor of hacking, where Gibson wrote like a pseudo-shamanistic ideal of hacking where you plug yourself di- directly into the computer. Yeah. And it was a core thematic element of the novel, which I find that people replicate without really understanding. But I thought, okay, so what if we just ditch that metaphor entirely and just go with the hackers movie instead? Yeah, when I um, when I have run eclipse phase in the past i've always been like i've always leaned more towards hacking being more like you see it in an espionage movie it's like you're running code like you're not you're not diving into the simulation because that's not an efficient (laughs) use like why would you spend all this all these machine resources on rendering your consciousness when you could just run lines of code and even better, since I layered in t- on top of a social system, I have built in the hacking concept known as social engineering. Oh, yes. Like you, you, you force someone to give you, you their password by tricking them or something like that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's manipulating. The way that it was explained to me by a cybersecurity expert was that mm-hmm. it is manipulating. It is getting into a, a system through the weakest part of that system, which is the human element, rather than exactly. like, you know, try to get through the firewalls or whatever. It's like fucking walk into the building, like tell them that you need to use the toilet. It's the bit in, it's the bit in the movie hackers when he calls up the security guard and he's like, Oh, my BLT <laughs> drive fried. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, Mr. Yakitori's going to make me commit Harakiri. If I don't, uh, don't finish these reports, these, <laughs> These wild Japanese managerial techniques. I'm not making that up, by the way. That is a almost direct quote for those that have not seen the movie. Another Um, example of that right in the movie is when Nikon, the character, is in the office delivering flowers, delivering, mm -hmm. and he's trying to, like, memorize people's passwords by looking what they're typing. Yeah, because he's got the photographic memory. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's Um, plenty of conceits in that movie, but, like, that is still a very excellent example. Fictionally. And uh, what happens is when I layered this idea of hacking on top of a social system, social engineering just sort of was part of the system from the beginning. Mm. So everyone can take part. Everyone is like doing things, putting on disguises, talking to people to hack. Yeah. And uh, on top of that, I then layered fighting, which is like interesting to me because during fights in my game you can technically just go and like try to placate someone like hey cool it cool it like we can talk about this like civilized people Hmm, that's a that's like a fair point and uh uh, because of the layering i did where the social system is the core concept rather than a combat system that uh, that kind of tier works out very differently yeah i think that i think that that's an aspect of design that a lot of people miss and i think that you've talked to well, not even this. I mean, miss, not in the sense, sense of ignore, miss in the sense of haven't really like, interrogated the idea. Yeah, it's it's so core to the concept of these tabletop games that most people really don't think of interrogating it at all. Yeah, and even when you're like, even when you're, even if you set out to make a game that doesn't have combat, you, mo- you still might end up putting in 
some you still might end up putting in something adversarial. Exactly. Or you might settle on a system that doesn't like actually fit the narrative that you're trying to tell, like mm. a game about my phone just went off. <laughs> a game about um a game about uh a community like trying to work together. Mm. might not even have a need of a resolution mechanic. If the core aspect of the game is talking to other members of the community and all the other members of the community are other players, then you may not actually need a rolling mechanic. Um, Exactly. And on top of that, to really build on the themes of the game, like, okay, so the social aspect is a big, big, big concept. Uh, What if we take the Shadowrun idea of doing these missions, like these runs... And cut out the Johnson, cut out the like anonymous middleman entirely. No one is anonymous who hires you. Mm-hmm. Well, you're always being hired by someone in the community, someone with a name, because there isn't this system of like shadowy corporate war. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, my understanding is that there are corporations and they're trying to, from the setting stuff that Eden told me, there's, there are corporations and they're decide, trying to get in on the, the dream of uh, the main habitat's called Grand Central Station, I think. Uh, something. It's a Grand, Grand Cross. It's a it's Grand an astro- Cross. Yeah. It's yeah a, Grand Cross. Sorry. Grand Cross is the worst astrological phenomenon like you can ever encounter. So I oh. named the station that, of course. Cool. It's like uh, it's like naming a spaceship Icarus. You see it all the time in science fiction. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's the joke, really. Uh, so. Yeah, and talking about how they're trying to like get in on these communities, and he talked about how you are mm-hmm. you are basically playing as active participants in your community. You are not yeah. passive members of your community, so like, you are. Yeah, Grand Cross Station is a democracy, and it's being undermined by corporate interests, basically. Mm, like all democracy, exactly. <laughs> um, we, I, I believe we even list the United States explicitly as a threat to Grand Cross's democracy because it's like a foreign power to the United States. But uh, that's a topic for another time, I think. I mean, perhaps <laughs> later in the interview, I definitely think it falls within the purview. Like, it's an interesting thing to explore. Um, yeah, uh, when none of the authors of the game are from the United States, this sort of thing becomes, like, more easy to talk about, I think. Mm. I, um, I always want to put in like things about Australia into, into stuff, especially when I'm making like a sci-fi thing uh-huh. because I feel like Australia is underrepresented in sci-fi stuff and um, more, yeah. more so as a, and, and you know, as, as my opinions of Australia worsen, I'm like, <laughs> I need to like put Australia in here as like a, fascist state that needs to be destroyed because it is uh but yeah one of the influences of our game actually more on my part than edens i think is the australian themed game beneath the steel sky it's a cyberpunk thriller i haven't heard of that it's an old like amiga title i believe oh wow wild yeah that's very cool very old adventure game and uh it's it's got australian voice acting and australian themes to it which is very like very unique to me that is wild. I'd never even heard of that before. That's so cool. I love learning like about new things about my own country um, when I'm talking to someone from far away. Uh, <laughs> and we, we certainly put a lot of references to both Iceland and Australia in the setting. I can, I can 
I can promise that at least. And uh, what happens with the intersection of the setting and the mechanics is uh, we had to interrogate a lot of other things about cyberpunk because uh, usually in cyberpunk you have like this system of cybernetics and mm-hmm. augment. Ah, yes. Where, I talked a bit about this with Etten and yeah. we talked about the cyberpunk's propensity to portray prosthetics as dehumanizing mm-hmm. while also yeah. trying to pr- portray them as cool. Exactly. Like, like they treat them more like toys for cool white people mm-hmm. uh, who are not disabled than they actually talk about them as a functional things. Yeah, or they talk about how you lose your soul when you get them. Uh, in, in Shadowrun, yeah. you can't use magic if you have cybernetics and shit like that. And in Cyberpunk 2020 and 2077, the themes are always explicitly that, like, oh, you're commodifying your human body that makes you, like, less human. Like, no, it doesn't. Yeah, that has some really, like, gross implications for, I mean, laborers and sex workers and... like. Trans people, for one as well. Yeah, and uh, I explicitly wanted to avoid that, but then I thought, okay, so what if we just make these this empowering thing, this ultimately empowering thing that you really shouldn't have to fight for, this thing that allows like anyone to uh, leap tall buildings in one bound, say, in low gravity at least. Uh, What if, like, what if that is the angle of oppression? So rather than say you are less human for taking on these augmentations, we say corporations encourage their workers to augment themselves for their jobs and then downsize them and leave them paying the bill. Oh, okay. That's an interesting way to take that. Yeah. So uh, the augmentations themselves do not in any way make you less human or anything like that. And if anything, they empower you to make like all kinds of decisions. Like I believe, uh, hormone replacement implants are a free cosmetic upgrade you can get. I once um, saw a thing that talked about the fact that uh, the difference between like body augmentation or, or really the difference between body augmentation vis-a-vis cyberpunk versus transhuman fiction mm. is that cyberpunk is about body dysphoria and yeah. transhumanist fiction is about body euphoria, which are terms that are really um, common or, or that trans people are aware of, as exactly. speaking for myself. I, have, I actually have a mechanic in the game for like people who have a full body prosthetic, like an entirely cybernetic body. Oh, man, the dream! And uh, there are two versions of the traits, one which gives you like dysphoria and one gives you euphoria. Yeah, that's wild. Because, yeah, like for some people, I can, like, definitely that is going to be traumatizing. And for other people, that would be so liberating. Exactly. And, uh, like, that's the core rules example of how to modify traits, I believe, is exactly that. Like, what if you don't get dysphoria from this? What if it actually empowers you? You can do this instead. Yeah. It is. uh, I think that that is, well, is a really good illustration of how you've brought your themes into your mechanics like lots of lots of and i think something that you're illustrating here and please correct me if i'm wrong is that you're showing that mechanics and setting should inform one another like people you can't you can't have 
You can't take D. You can't take D and D as written and make a cyberpunk game because it is inherently not punk. It is. It, 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 it can't be punk. You are colonizers in D and D. And it it gets especially interesting in D and D because not even D and D's mechanics enforce its own themes in certain ways. Like usually, you end up playing a band of weird misfit outsiders who don't fit into their society, which is the reason they go adventuring. Hmm. But the game never interrogates that idea, never talks about that. Yeah, indeed, a hundred percent, I agree. And uh, so, what? So, if cybernetics are empowering, how are they oppressive exactly? Like, uh, how does that work? So. In my game, it's capitalism. Mm-hmm. And the idea is you have a burden stat, which is like a psychological burden uh, from having not enough money. Oh, you just yeah. have enough to get around. And when you take on these cybernetics for any re- one reason or another, sometimes they're for free, but usually they will increase your burden stat and make it more likely for you to suffer like uh, unexpected side effects uh, uh, effects of poverty. Maybe you have to skip meals. Uh, maybe you have to skip bills. Maybe you get kicked out of your apartment. Uh, these are like, like I call this economic shock. Mm. And a friend of mine called them financial hit points. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I think they're more like saving throw versus economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Essentially. Uh, and the idea is these empowering things that you really should not have to struggle for are being a struggle because of corporations and how they are selling this to you. Yeah, they're things that people should have access to, but these corporations are controlling the flow of them. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's uh, and this touches on like issues that actual people face today who are having to deal with prosthetics and expensive uh, manufacturers who aren't subsidized by their insurance and so on. Yeah. I was reading about someone recently who had an airline um, that ruined their uh, wheelchair. They they were traveling with it and they told, instructed the airline how to properly store their wheelchair. And they pretty much did the one thing that the airline, that they were, they were told not to and, uh, and ruined the wheelchair. And the yeah. person still needed to get home. They had to repair it, and they had to try and get the airline to uh, pay for the repairs. And it's like airline is very non-responsive. Uh-huh. It's, um, uh, and like, yeah, these things that people need. That, yeah, my experience of that is my father was like when he lived, bless his soul. Uh, he was in a wheelchair for the last few years of his life, mm-hmm. and I saw these issues constantly there was not a day where we were outside where someone didn't try to push him oh yeah i've heard lots of people talk about that yeah um there there were constant struggles just trying to get the wheelchair and then trying to like not have to pay for it full price and so on it was absolutely awful yeah i've um you talk about like the the pushing thing um Mm -hmm. my my the things that i have heard people that uh use wheelchairs say is that like like you don't basically you don't need to push them unless like they seem like they're actually struggling and then still ask just ask if they need a hand but i've seen a really cool thing for sale lately which are (laughs) um they're they're like sheaths with spikes or like sharp bits that go over the the back handles on wheelchairs to make it impossible for people to grab them those would have been incredibly handy 
<laughs> like it's just an amazing. It, it reminds me of um, speaking of cyberpunk things. The yeah. the someone made a robotic dress that has these arms on the shoulders. These like spider like sharp arms that re yeah. that monitor your um your heart rate and body temperature to tell when you're uncomfortable. And when you are uncomfortable, the arms spread out aggressively <laughs> to make sure you have enough space to push nice. people away from you. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I really need to work that into somehow. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, I can see that being an item of clothing that somebody with like anxiety might, or, mm. or any kind of like, difficulty asserting and controlling their personal space, obviously not a thing that I personally have trouble with, um, is um, I can see that that being really like useful to some people. Like, yeah. So what I did for my game was like these tiny little endless cruelties done to the, done to people who need these prosthetics who need these wheelchairs who need these like daily aids. Mm hmm. Uh, I removed them. I removed all those cruelties from from like most of the game for like disability reasons and so on. Like you can get a prosthetic that is for free and it doesn't really like cost you anything. I just I actually just completely remove that aspect of it, and instead I overlay it on everyone else. Oh, can you like so, expand on that explanation a bit more? Yeah. So what happens is like. Uh, capitalism is really, really, really cruel to you if you need these things. And I decided I don't want to be cruel to people like that. If they're playing my game, I don't want to uh, like reinforce or like use that cruelty against them. So I made that like I made sure that Grand Cross, the old government, had like a system where like oh you can get these and they don't cost you anything. They don't increase your burden. It's fine. But if you only want to look cool or get something useful out of them or like enhance yourself then it starts costing you. That's really interesting. I've seen, um, it reminds me of something similar, another game that had cybernetics where a cybernetic, if you wanted a cybernetic um, device that Mm -hmm. simply replicated the full functionality of a normal limb, it was free and super easy to get. It was when you yeah. wanted to put like a laser cannon in your arm or like have it be super strong or like it can like hack things <laughs> that it becomes prohibitively expensive. You can still yeah, get it, but I... it costs heaps. It's like, it's the equivalent of fighters have get swords for free at character generation. But if you want like flamethrowers on your sword, you have to pay extra. Yeah. I call it the Edgelord tax. Oh, that's a really good name for it. <laughs> And uh, I have a lot of these little names in my Scrivener file, which I don't use in the final document. But uh, part of that economic oppression that occurs when you buy these things is like, okay, so you have these oppression, this oppressive element on your character sheet at all times. This burden that always reminds you, okay, you need to do something. You need to earn cash to reduce your burden. And then the burden rises suddenly when the station's economy gets worse. And what happens in the mechanics is uh, I sort of accidentally in, put in a little bit of my like real-life socialist beliefs because it's easier and better for everyone in the group to assist the one who, is, who has it the worst than to try to like advance yourself. That reminds me of the um, Tontine style of play for Bread Markets, which is an economic horror game where like mm-hmm. the whole point of playing that game is to 
is this like the central loop is your being a player character sucks. Player characters yeah. want to retire. So they all have like retirement plans and the tontine style of play is rather than everyone having separate retirement retirement plans, you all have the same retirement plan and everyone yeah. pays into it together. And like what I heard about that form of play and like the, the thing of if you have paid in all of your share, then you should start paying for other people in it because that gets you out of the apocalypse faster. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, it's a it's a very similar. And so it is in your best interest. And like when I heard about that style of play, I'm like, why the fuck would I ever want to play any other like mode <laughs> of this game? When why would I ever not want to play Tontine style? Like it it is the most to me. It feels the most representative of what would actually happen in that situation. Like I'm not going to abandon all these people uh, exactly. that I care about. <laughs> And it's like, I don't really care about games where you crime yourself into capitalism. I want to, like, mm-hmm. escape them. Yeah, and, I think uh, Etten talked about that when we had the previous <laughs> interview as well. I think, I can't remember how Etten put it, but I think it was something to the effect of, like, in Shadowrun, you're trying to get to a point where you're, like, you're, like, part of the system. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's... I think we said, we basically talked about how that's not cyberpunk and like that's not yeah. the loop in your game. What's interesting to me about how I wrote the system was I sort of like you can share your burden with other characters and it's a little bit of a risk because if one of them suffers an economic shock, shock they all do, but it reduces the burden for the group overall. Interesting. So you can like live in pairs or all live together if you like, and it reduces your burden, like makes it less likely for everyone to, you know, suffer a consequence. And it means that cooperation is very, very much baked into these mechanics. So cool. Fucking catch me in the cylinder world living in my collectivist (laughs) commune. (laughs) our core I think our core example, like characters, all four of them are sharing apartments my favorite uh, Eclipse Days campaign that I ran was um, one set in the in a collectivist uh, community mm-hmm. where the particular collective specialized in like the thing that they did for their community is they went they were a, they were like a first in team for Stargate <laughs> shit. That was their specialty. They were really good at going <laughs> to places before anyone else, and so they also offered. Uh, like emergency services as part of that. But like they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm into intentional community stuff. It doesn't have yeah. to be drunk, uh, <laughs> drunk, extreme, extremophiles, uh, fucking yeah. uh, jumping through cool. stargates. I'm also here for people trying to feed themselves. If you watch Blade Runner and people go like, oh, the flying cars and the clones and the guns and the cool stuff. And I think the the apartment scene where he's just on the computer, that's really cool. I want I want that in my game. <laughs> I mean, I think about all the clothing. <laughs> yeah, well, um, we don't quite replicate the fashion. Fair. Uh, so I think we're getting close to running out of time. So I want mm-hmm. to... I did a similar thing with Etten, uh, where I asked, uh, I asked about elements that stood out, uh, out as the game that we haven't touched on that might grab people. So give me 
two, because we're talk- we've been primarily talking about mechanical interaction, yeah. tell me two mechanics that stand out to you as unique um, that we haven't already talked about. Well, uh, since I've already talked about burden, but then it's not really that unique. I would say probably the experience system. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about character progression. I mean, you also said, like, derived from D&D, and I didn't ask if you had classes <laughs> or anything either. Yeah, we, I- do have, we do kind of have classes and so on, but I think the experience system is going to be very interesting to people because it relies on earning these little achievements, and the achievements themselves also give you bonuses. So you can earn experience for saving a local small group of businesses and then you can call upon that local small group of businesses in a later session to buy something oh that's very cool so it's like milestone kind of it's it's like a, it it's like achievement it's like yeah you've you've done yeah. this thing or yeah you've done this thing for the community it has both a real benefit and also you grow because of it and the mechanic is that you write these things down, so you're always sort of like, oh, yeah, we did that. That's cool. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Uh, that would be the first mechanic. The other mechanic, I think, uh, that I haven't really talked about, hmm, that would probably be the acquisition and cash system. Oh? Where uh, you don't just go out and buy things. Uh, you have to do this little song and dance where you're like, oh, is it illegal or restricted? Uh, do you make someone angry by buying it? This is it's this little story generator, which can make things more complicated during missions. Interesting. So do you mostly use it when you... Something yeah, that happens in D&D is shopping, like, episodes, mm-hmm. which I really don't like. Yeah. Um, and, uh, which, well, like, I fucking love window shopping. I'm all in on window <laughs> shopping, but if I'm window shopping... In a game, the game better be about window shopping. Yeah. Incidentally, I do is- uh, I'm I'm writing a doll maker transhuman calendar RPG uh, oh. about socialites. So stay tuned for my fucking window shopping RPG. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Acquis- so like, is the is the acquisitions thing? My actual question. Sorry, yeah. it's gonna be is the acquisitions thing primarily used for when you need a thing rather than. I want to get a fucking new outfit. Yeah, it's uh, it's stuck right in the mission preparation section. So I, I like I take these game sessions where you have oh we're going to spend the next six hours pouring over maps to do this shadow run, or we're going to read through the book and find equipment for six hours, and I condense that all down into this one little system. Mm-hmm. And the acquisitions thing is going to be mostly part of that. Right. So you're kind of, I mean, not necessarily intentionally because i don't know what rules you've read um but (laughs) it reminds me from what you've said there of the way the mission building works in more so in blades than the sprawl but a little bit of the sprawl and blades and pretty much anything where you don't get bogged down heavily in the meticulous planning aspect Excellent. of a heist. Yeah, what I wanted to do was to get rid of the like the bark and just get to the plan. And I believe that mechanic is like if you like the one in Blades or you like the one in the Leverage role playing game, which is also an inspiration. Yes, to me, Leverage I imagine would have a similar thing. Or then you then you're probably going to like this one. Nice. That's so cool. 
Oh, I have really loved talking to you. I think that you are definitely a RPG designer to watch. Um, we didn't talk about it much in this interview, but um, are is this your first like published game? My first published solo project, yes, or you know, solo. It's thing, a thing where you are uh, yeah, are, are the headlining act. Yeah. Uh, cool. Um, yeah. Well, I really am looking forward to seeing what work you come out with in the future. I'm looking Thank forward you. to seeing uh, how Hard White Island uh, develops. I really mm-hmm. hope that you get the uh, funding to pull in the more diverse voices that you're shooting for. I'm really glad that you, according to <laughs> Etten's Twitter, already have non-human non-humanoid AIs on staff. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> and I look forward to you finding an android and a cyborg, um, as well as some, you know, more people of color to contribute. Um, so where can people find more uh, from you and keep track of uh, all the projects that you have coming out in the future? And where might they also find out more information about Hardwired Island? About Hardwired Island, I would say you could go to the Kickstarter page primarily and follow me or Eden on Twitter. And about me, generally, I have a Patreon, which is only recently active. And you can definitely find me on my Twitter account. I can promise you that. And we will have links to the Kickstarter and your Twitter and your Patreon down below. Uh, Thank you for being on the show. And thank you all for listening. Uh, If you enjoyed listening to this interview, don't forget to check out part one uh, with Etten. And also check out our other interviews with other game designers uh, down by clicking on the interview tag. Uh, You can see all the other interviews. There's also a playlist on SoundCloud and there's a category on the main website. But we have 32 as of this interview uh, interviews uh, for you to look at, uh, including interviews with a bunch of the designers of games that we mentioned in this interview. Um, So please check out that. They are a wealth of information. Um, Interviews with game designers are amazing. I think that it is perhaps the best way to really get inside the intention of a game. Uh, and kind of understand what a game is doing. I definitely was... There's a bunch of games that I felt way more interested in after hearing the designer talk about them. Um, So do encourage you to check that out and seek out interviews from other people uh, with the designers of games that you love. Um, For now, I want to thank you, Freya, for being on the show. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I look forward to the success of your Kickstarter. Uh, it seems to be going quite well. I believe you mit- met your minimum funding goal. Yeah. And now we're moving into uh, stretch goals and things like that. Yep. I'm shooting for twice the minimum funding. I hope that you get it. Um, yeah. I think that I, I think that this is really a project that people should get behind. Um, and I hope that uh, I hope that it all goes well for you. Uh, but for now. I'm going to say farewell from the past. I'm Ray.